0: Head to the slash merch.
1: Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today.
0: And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011.
1: So many great movies, so many great conversations, but it's a lot of work. Producing this show week after week does require a lot behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered.
0: Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions.
1: We had some great films in season eight that started their lives as books or plays, and you can find all of them on our Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals.
0: That's the site where listeners can find links to purchase all the source material behind the adapted films we have covered. From season one up through our current season.
1: For part of season eight, we had a series celebrating the 50th anniversary of films from 1968.
0: We talked about 2001 and 2010 for our Odyssey series, both adapted from Arthur C. Clarke's novels. Man, the second one was so much better than the first, right?
1: Don't you even get me started. (sighs) Need I bring up Under the Cherry Moon again?
0: Yes! Also, so much better! <laughs> wait, wait, no! That's not what I... Uh, <laughs> Planet of the Apes
1: kicked off its series based on the novel by Pierre Boulet. We covered Danger Diabolic and The Detective, adapted from novels for our 1968 crime films. Wait,
0: wasn't that The Detective the prequel to Die Hard?
1: They were both written by Roderick Thorpe, and yes, it's the same character in the books!
0: I can't believe they even asked Sinatra if he'd be in Die
1: Hard. That would have been yeah. weird. <sighs> Uh, Once Upon a Time in America was part of our Leone Once Upon a Time trilogy, adapted from Harry Gray's novel.
0: And we looked at 1968 Best Picture nominees The Lion in Winter, Rachel, Rachel, Romeo and Juliet, and Oliver.
1: We also had an Ingrid Bergman series with adaptations like Spellbound, For Whom the Bell Tolls, Murder on the Orient Express, and Gaslight.
0: We haven't talked about Gaslight.
1: Stop gaslighting me. <laughs> Dive deeper into these books
0: and more adapted films at thenextreelcom slash originals. Every purchase supports the podcast.
1: Get the full list of adaptations that we've covered on all the Next Real family of podcasts and start your next read today at thenextreelcom slash originals.
0: next reel everybody i'm pete wright and that there is andy nelson hey 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 and we spoil movies tonight on the show we're not talking about the 1990s hit contemporary christian rock group rachel rachel but maybe we should be at the 30th annual academy awards
1: joanne woodward i can only say i i've been daydreaming about this since i was nine years old Thank you very much.
0: In 1968, Paul Newman, famous in front of the motion picture cameras, undertook his first assignment behind them as director. Joanne Woodward, Mrs. Newman in private life, agreed to star for him. Paul Newman tells it. She's sitting on a set, and she appears to do absolutely nothing. But there's some strange motor going on in there that us fellas don't know anything about. In watching some of the things that she did, I literally would have to turn away from the camera because uh, it would get to me. Those elegant sandwiches were simply delicious so glad you enjoyed them enjoyed them. I'm not going to be able to haul myself out of this chair. I walked over to and I said, what would you do? Show me. And she walked over and did what she did. And that was it. We printed the first take and I said, take a scene in the picture. Why didn't you get married like a normal woman and have children like your sister Stacy did? Okay, Andy, I, I admit it. I'm being a little bit cheeky in the, uh, in, in the intro there. A little bit cheeky. Just a little bit. I I didn't I I didn't uh, this was one of those movies that you know we we set up this movie this 1968 best picture the best picture thing uh as as we uh wrap up uh, a little bit belatedly our our last year with these next couple of films and uh I I, I know now I feel like after watching it I understand why this movie has largely been uh I don't know is forgotten
1: too strong a word. I was going to say um lost to time, but yeah. I'm not sure if that's any uh any less strong. How did the how did you connect with this movie? Well, it's interesting. I I feel uh very much the same. I I can see why probably in context 50 years ago of what people would want to recognize as a Uh, as kind of a a film representing kind of what was going on at the time, Mm -hmm. who was involved, all that sort of stuff. I can see why it may be something that got some recognition. But watching it 50 years later, I can certainly see why it's probably just kind of not regarded as something really anymore. Yeah, Um, But it's interesting. It's an interesting film to watch still. Um, But yeah, nothing I loved.
0: It It is. I think you're that that comment on what was going on at the time. And we were not there at the time. We were not uh, <laughs> not even, um, you know, babies at the time. But it, it is, as I understand it, a time as I, I talked to my uh, in-laws, they were here and I was explaining to them what this film was all about. And their first reaction was, wow, it sounds like a Hallmark movie, like a lifestyle or a, a lifetime film. I said, well, maybe except for, you know, there's this uh, lesbian theme and there's, uh, you know, some some sex to it and certainly some trauma and grief. And uh, maybe a dose of PTSD, and their response was, "Yeah, that that sounds about about right." 1968. That would be pushing some buttons, um, for at least in in their estimation, pushing some buttons for a lot of people. It would have been edgy, you know. this This movie would have been something that would have, um, you know, opened your eyes a little bit, uh, and and possibly. It is that it is the way it handles some of these elements that I found really frustrating that the movie didn't go uh, what I would characterize as all in on a lot of these things. Um, it, it's it's the way it pushed sort of those buttons that makes the movie a little bit dated conceptually that it it uh, you know, it, it was great at the time and certainly highlights a fantastic performance by our lead actress. But um, but it, it just doesn't uh, doesn't hold up to the stuff we're we're watching today.
1: To me, there were elements of it that that brought back uh, the Frank Sinatra film, The Detective that we talked about, mm-hmm. where I felt like for the time it was pushing on some some issues that were pretty interesting. And it was nice to see a film kind of digging into some of the the, the more interesting issues of the time. Um, but maybe it's not quite as strong. I, I would say I think this film may be a little better than Detective. I don't know. I'm, I'm a little torn on that. Um, I this is a really interesting character piece. Um, it wasn't anything that really kind of uh knocked my socks off, though. But um, but I can see why for somebody like Paul Newman, who had had you know a pretty strong career by this point. I mean, he had been acting since the the early '50s, and uh, this is his first hand at directing. Um, coming off of uh, Cool Hand Luke, which he had just uh, acted in the year before, which was which is quite a hit and a a big thing for him. And now, uh, and I think this would be another thing that kind of makes it stand out as not necessarily something that would be um, left to just Hallmark uh, Channel or Lifetime, uh, the fact that it has kind of, it's a prestige director piece. It's an actor uh, trying to direct for the first time. And um, to that end, there's a little bit of that prestige element that goes along with it. And I think that that uh, does elevate a little bit. And I think honestly, that's probably one of the things that gave it a little bit more of the um, the popularity at the time. The fact that Paul Newman was involved and he was directing his right. wife, um, I think that really helps because it otherwise it feels very independent. Um, even actually, I mean, even with Paul Newman directing, it still feels like an indie. Uh, uh, production some of the way that the storytelling was was uh, kind of uh, jumping through time and the some of the camera styles there were elements in it that felt a little more uh, you know rough-edged and I think there's something of the 60s to that but also I think this is the sort of film that does still get made today even outside of Lifetime and Hallmark but that is done in more of the independent world. And it reminded me actually a lot of some of the little indie movies that get recognized for uh, best picture or best actor or best actress because they're kind of these little character films that stand out because of the central performances.
0: I'm really, you know, I couldn't help but think about Kelly Reichardt as sort of the the uh, spiritual inheritor of some of the messages in this film and some of the stylistic choices in this film and so when you talk about it being kind of an indie thing uh that's exactly what i feel like i mean this could have been um just as easily you know michelle williams or laura dern uh in this sure. uh, in, in this role and i and so in that regard i i found it really interesting that and and i think as a you know a, a, the challenges that i have are are not necessarily with Paul Newman, and maybe the, what I didn't connect with was just on a story level, um, but I found the, the actual narrative unfulfilling, and, and I know that there are any number of reasons that I don't connect with this particular woman, uh, that I am not this particular woman, that I don't have these same sorts of issues, and, and, and I found so little to relate with to her, um, but, but it is a competent film. Right. It is a, a competent director's film. It's it feels like something that, uh, you know, I, I, I there was nothing that jumped out at me in here that says, oh, Paul Newman should not be directing things. Um, and uh, there you know, that I, I think, uh, you know, Joanne Woodward was uh, I, I really enjoyed watching her work. And even when she is, you know, in her most sort of subdued state, um, I, I found her deeply magnetically interesting to watch on screen and and some of the choices that she made particularly when her mother is yelling at her at the end through the closed door you know why couldn't you just have gotten married and the way she uses her body woodward i mean i just felt like it was um it, it was very interesting and yet i still walk away from this film unfulfilled
1: interesting i um i would say i felt pretty fulfilled by the end of this film i, I still don't wouldn't say that I i loved it but for me, I thought they did a really great job of kind of weaving this story about these uh, this character that, yeah, I mean, I largely um, uh, can't relate to her and her life experience, but what I really appreciated about the film is how well I thought um, Newman uh, did along with the uh, the screenplay and Joan Woodward at getting me into her head. I really, really enjoyed just kind of the way that we had some really interesting storytelling styles, as far as kind of um, with the kind of the the little uh, delusional moments uh, in her head of like freaking out about her slip showing, or kind of those imagined moments that um, that we had of you know where she's she's making out with the principal and. Uh, things like that that i i found really interesting i loved the way they helped me really connect with her kind of voice over everything i mean it was it was a really fascinating way to tell this story and i really appreciated everything that they did and for me i thought all of that worked exceptionally and to that end i can see why uh paul newman wanted to do this and with his wife and give her this chance to do this what i thought was kind of a standout actress performance um I I was really just kind of uh, just taken by the powerhouse performance at the center of the film here. And again, it's not a film I loved, but I I found it to be a really interesting character piece. And I did connect with it quite a bit. I, you know,
0: you dropped a lot of things in there for me to respond to. And that's not fair. Um, uh, no. okay. First, the, the <laughs> little, the, the little delusional, uh, tricks that we get in the very beginning, we start with the, the slip showing. You're right. It is, uh, fascinating. I was really drawn in to that as a tool, um, to, to demonstrate what anxiety looks like. Right. And, and what she is going through as a person. And this is the first of a number of areas in the film that I felt, um, gave me this sort of unrequited sense of completion. Right. And, and you know, me, I mean, I'm I am not it, it takes a lot for a movie to leave me with this with ambiguous sort of hanging threads uh, that are incomplete and make me feel good about it. Like I genuinely I mean, I generally like to uh ha, to have you know my narratives answered <laughs> you know i like to have <laughs> these questions answered i i when i walk out of a movie and i li- i'm left with these um you know open many open questions it's a rare movie that i feel good about it I, and this is one of those movies that i wanted i wanted to know more about how these threads uh, but resolved, and her anxiety the way she just relates to the world, the way she feels about um you know her own perception right her self perception and and self judgment how that is addressed is that all addressed by finding a man and standing up to her mother i i didn't think so um, her relationship to God and to religion there is a, a a wonderfully satisfying and confusing sequence in the middle of the film where she is um, faced with this, uh, you know, uh, evangelical uh, community, and she seems to have a a transformative experience there. And that's all gone, right? It's all gone. And she withdraw withdraws from that. She then is confronted by her dearest friend, uh, you know, approaching her maybe as a a lesbian, maybe as a um, somebody who's just overwhelmed by the emotion of the religious experience. It happens immediately before it. Whatever the case, again, Rachel just withdraws and we don't get any resolution to that element in the film at all. And I found that enormously frustrating. I wanted to know how, at the end of this film, her relationship with the world has changed beyond just her relationship or her having, you know, had sex as a for the first time as a 35-year-old. You know, I, I, just, I just didn't get it. Uh, and, uh, that's, that's the stuff I didn't connect to your your point about this being a a powerhouse performance is, I I mean, I think it's, you hit it right on the head. And I, I call this a LaVion Rose performance for me. You know, I think we, we both walked away from that movie, you know, singing the praises of Marion Cotillard as, uh, you know, Edith Piaf. She's just fantastic in that movie. And yet the movie wasn't As great as her performance. I feel that way about this one, that I really love Joanne Woodward in this thing. And I think it's a competent film, but I I feel like they they just um, didn't address the things I was most interested in learning about that character in a satisfying way.
1: Well, I think that's really interesting. I I think it's one of those films where it's going to depend on um how you're finding a Rachel dealing with all these situations that's going to determine wh- you know where you feel she is at the end of it and how uh you know how she's affected by these things cuz the those points that you made like when she has that uh that moment at the evangelical um uh almost attack that she's she's faced at that kind of the church revival right right. um where she's so overwhelmed and like uh almost to the point where she explodes i found it to be uh just amazing to see how how kind of locked up she was and 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 for me all of these moments that moment to the moment where um where her friend kind of uh comes on to her, uh, where Kala, you know, kind of uh, kisses her and all of that. Um, dealing with her relationship um, with uh, with Nick, all of these things for me all worked together, and it wasn't just about the fact that you know she she finally had sex and was able to start opening up, but just just dealing with uh, all of these little moments were all things that helped her finally find her way out of this place that she had put herself where she was this kind of this uh, in her head she was already kind of this old spinster who had to take care of her mother and uh she was all of these things gave her these chances that i guess you could say you know this this glass case that she had put herself in were all chances for her to kind of crack that glass a little bit which took a while you know the 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 um false pregnancy that she thought she had and having to go through the surgery and and uh you know the the you know falling in love with the guy and all of these things I think were really interesting elements to watch her kind of grow and so for me it ended up working a lot better because I don't know I just found it um interesting to see how all of those things uh, how she you know kind of was taken by those moments and and kept trying to close herself off uh, only to find her way through it. I loved it. I mean, I I didn't love the film, but I loved that element of her, of her, uh, character's growth.
0: Well, and I think you're you are, you know, more uh, fluid with, you know, your acceptance of those unanswered questions and how sure uh, of the unanswered questions and how all these pieces fit together as a whole. And, uh, you know, and I I, I absolutely understand. And I respect that I have uh, I, I just have a hard time connecting with it. And I think we all feel these kinds of things, these questions of, of you know, uh, relevance and resonance and our place in the world. And are we achieving everything we need to achieve and and. Uh, you know, have we faced what we need to face to slay our our demons to level up, however you want to put it? And um, I, I was not able to to um, to see anything sort of unique or stand out in in Rachel's story, in spite of a great performance. The ending, can we talk about the ending? Because the, I think the ending is a is a, and and I'm talking about the the absolute ending like the credit roll ending because that is is the icing on the cake of ambiguity in this regard to me and, and I had real trouble with it uh, we're talking about you know this what may be a vision it may be a dream it may be a, a some sort of a state of, of wonderment uh, but the end of the film she makes her way to Oregon her mother has uh, uh, decided to come along and she talks about uh, this vision of uh her and her children or her child and we see uh, what i think is her with a child but it may be a younger version of her mother with her as a child i'm not sure how did you read that
1: well and that that goes to a lot of the elements of the film cuz we kind of cut into those shots uh from seeing her looking out the bus windows right 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 with um, her mother on and- the bus yeah. And so it makes it uh, ambiguous because we have seen these moments where she's imagining things. Like I mentioned where she's kissing the principal or there's that kid, that right. that lonely boy that she kind of uh, class, uh, she in her class and she takes him home. And then there's a, a scene where she's rocking her baby, all these imagined things, because the movie continuously puts us into her head. And then at the end, you know, is it reality? Is this later? Does she finally get to oregon meet somebody and have a kid and is this her with her kid or is it just something that she's imagining again i i don't know but i i really kind of liked that they left it ambiguous i thought that was a really interesting um element that we get here because i think that's one thing that we uh see quite a bit with rachel is this is a person who is always imagining these uh better situations for herself these happier things these these um Bits where she's kind of taking action and a part of something that's making her uh, big and happy and everything. And I really liked how it it gave us that. But at the same time, we have now seen her kind of go through that change where she has made this decision to go off to Oregon. So it is possible to actually read this as this might be her uh, in the future. I thought that was actually a nice way to kind of play it. I, I liked it quite a bit. I knew you'd say that, and it made me crazy.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, it was, it was the, uh, it was tough. Uh, it was tough. And, and uh, I was frustrated and I watched to the very, very end and the final copyright screen because I wanted there to be like a post-credit sequence or something. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I needed that. <laughs> and there was not, there was not, there was not. Uh, it, it just, you know, even her in the, the Hala restaurant <laughs> with the rest of the Avengers something something
1: well also I think that it's something to that does also mark the time this was the the yeah. late 60s uh, you know there was a lot of change going on in the country and there was a lot of discomfort and people trying to figure things out with the way that uh, things were shifting within the country and within themselves and and their own beliefs and everything and so I think to that end there is an interesting element that does reflect a little little bit of kind of that ambiguity of the time that uh, I think might have been something that also resonated more with people uh, in 1968 that made this stand out that much more.
0: Yeah, absolutely. When you look at, at just the compression of of life in a small town, you know, I thought that was was really authentic and maybe another statement on the era that her and her mother are living in this cockamamie kind of leased arrangement over her father's old funeral home. Um, You know that I I thought that was a a really interesting and sort of um, authentic portrayal of what her of of life at that time. Even if it's if I wasn't connecting with her life, uh, I I really liked that. You know, I like that that whole idea, and I really liked the character of the the new young funeral. Um, you know, director. I th- I thought he was great, and I wanted more of him after they shared a, their night together, drinking yeah. and talking in the funeral home. I thought that was really great, uh, and and I was excited to see him. And it, yet, it was another one where he just sort of dropped off the radar afterwards. It's another one of those little slice of life stories that that kind of left me wanting more.
1: Well, I think what that did for me. Uh, which I I think I found through a lot of the interactions with Rachel and the different people in her life is that, uh, yes, it was a great moment. I did like that moment where they're, they're uh, sitting and chatting. Um, But it, it gave us uh, kind of just, it was really all about Rachel. And and so to that end, I wasn't really concerned that we didn't see him come back into the story um, just like the, the stuff with the church. I think that all of those little moments just helped us um, find different ways to kind of shape Rachel and, and her place in the world. So to that end, uh, that didn't bug me too much. So let's talk a little bit more about Paul Newman uh, as a director. What stands out to you uh,
0: in, in terms of his performance behind the camera?
1: I I can see why he would gravitate to uh, making this as his first film. It was a small character piece, nothing too complicated. So to that end, it's probably easier for a first-time director to handle something. Um, Plus, it's very uh, character-focused, and as an actor, I, I find that that's something that really stands out as far as actors who become directors is they really like to focus on those interesting characters and obviously a really strong female character that he can uh he can cast with his wife i think makes perfect sense uh, you know having her be the lead i think gives her an amazing opportunity uh to kind of stand out and obviously they they would have a um a relationship he'd be able to kind of i I mean he hasn't directed her before, but at least have some form of a shorthand with her. I think all of that uh helped him tell this story, and I haven't read the book at all, a jest of God uh, by Margaret Lawrence that this is based on, so I don't know if it jumps back and forth through time as far as the way that the flashbacks weave in and and the the kind of that prose style of of voiceover that we get from rachel throughout the film um, and getting into her head but all of that stuff was they were elements that i thought paul newman handled exceptionally well in a directorial debut a really interesting camera styles um, just storytelling styles everything worked really well for me
0: Uh, We have talked about Stuart Stern, the screenwriter, uh, before, uh, who did the adaptation of this, as you mentioned, Margaret Lawrence's Jest of God. Um, He is the pen behind Rebel Without a Cause, um, uh, one of the credited writers behind that uh, film. You know, it's it's actually th- there's an interesting parallel between these two stories, that one in 1955 and this one here, you know, 13 years later. Um, when you talk about sort of small stories, these character stories, these stories about transformation, about people who are coming to terms with their de- inner demons and, uh, you know, these sort of internalized feelings that are not expressed uh, publicly and how they, they sort of bubble up. Uh, what, what's your take on the screenplay?
1: Yeah, I I agree. I think that that's an element that does stand out a bit with um, probably why Stern uh, chose to adapt it. I think that he seems like the type of writer who probably would work well with this sort of story. Uh, and even if you look at some of the other scripts that he's written, they feel very much kind of about a particular character and uh, kind of just their just what they're dealing with. So I, I think that it made for an interesting opportunity for him to jump into another really interesting character piece. Now we've already talked about Woodward herself. I I think she's fantastic. She's seriously great performance
0: here. And um, (laughs) that's funny. That's me just reading your words from the notes. Yes. She's seriously great. Uh, (laughs) I I really, I really like her. I adore her.
1: And um, have you seen Joanne Woodward in much else? I don't feel like I have. What do you know of, of what else she has done? She had won an Oscar uh, 10 years before for The Three Faces of Eve. Oh, and right, And then right, right. Uh, she was nominated here and in Summer Wishes, Winter Dreams five years later. And then in uh, Mr. and Mrs. Bridge, which she did with Newman um, in 1990. Um, I, But I, I feel like, I mean, looking at her filmography um i you know she'd done a lot of tv and stuff you know she had small parts like she was in philadelphia she did the narration in the age of innocence um she did a good number of movies actually with uh that her husband directed um but otherwise i don't feel like i've actually seen her in anything else i i feel like i've missed all of her big performances that she's done uh, throughout her career. So now I actually do want to jump back and watch some films like The Three Faces of Eve, uh, like The Long Hot Summer, which I think is where, I think that may be actually where she wet, met um, her husband. And uh, um, yeah, just just look at some other things that she's done so I can uh, get a sense of her more, because I really enjoyed watching her here. I felt like she just had an amazing presence on screen as this mousy little character i thought she was really compelling
0: well i agree with you and i think she's a a strong candidate for a future you know series right like let's look at some of the uh, of those performances that we just that have been missed in our catalog because you know as i look at her list i'm like you i i've seen her i've seen her in a lot of stuff but i haven't really seen her you know i mean i've yeah. seen her in philadelphia i don't i couldn't tell you what she was doing there um right yeah, i could either you know seen you, seen her in a lot of that kind of stuff so uh, i'm very interested to see her in some other uh, in some other stuff what about uh, the good nick kaslick uh, uh who was um, played
1: by james olson one of those faces that um i didn't realize that i recognized because he was in the andromeda strain yeah but I think that speaks to kind of the to the screen presence that he has where he just seems like an interesting character and doesn't seem like an actor. That's kind of how I came to him. I was like, you know, I really liked him as this as this character, Nick. And it was interesting because he he's done it in such a way both here and in the Andromeda strain where it just doesn't even seem like there's an actor there It just seems like that person. Right. And maybe you can say that about some of the best uh, supporting actors. You know, they just seem like the character they're playing. And uh, he certainly felt that way to me. I thought he was really interesting as this character who uh, ended up kind of dealing with this uh, situation of this kind of spinster woman falling for him that, you know, he was really just there to have uh, summer fling with. He he was in
0: commando, Major General Franklin Kirby. And that's apart from uh, the Andromeda string, which we've talked about. That's the film that I I all of the sudden uh, have this uh, image of of him more than any other. (laughs) Like he should have been in uniform in this movie. That would have brought brought him home for me.
1: Did it clarify in the film that the photo of the woman and child that he shows her saying that his wife and son, that it was a fake photo? I don't think so. There's another like, one of those
0: those little th- threads that's just left undone. Did that come through, though, that it was fake, that they weren't really his wife and kid? In fact, I didn't even see the mother. Like, I, I saw that kid, and I thought, well, maybe that was his twin. Like, he just carried around a picture of his twin in his wallet. Like, I didn't, I didn't catch that it was related until I started
1: reading up on it, but I, I don't well, know. Well, I, I got that it was his wife and kid, and that he's just like, you know, it was that whole thing, you know, I've got a family, I can't... I can't do anything yeah. with you, but I, I missed the point that, uh, cause his, I, I, maybe I just wasn't paying attention, but I guess when she's later talking to his mom after he's gone back, um, he's not married. And I, I feel like I missed that point and that that whole thing was just kind of his way of, of coming up with an excuse to get out of the, uh, uh, um, relationship, kind of the relationship that, uh, uh, that Rachel was so desperately clinging to. I mean, I really enjoyed that whole relationship. I thought it was interesting the way that it turned into this this thing for her. And, I, you know, I think it, when it's a first sexual experience, I think it's easy for a person to kind of fall into that. You know, you fall into that whole delusion of, uh, you know, happy life together and everything. Um, uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, I appreciated that and I thought he did a great job with it. It's funny. I I
0: was thinking about Up in the Air just now, right? And that relationship, that same sort of emotional intention behind the relationship that Clooney has and develops with his fellow, you know, traveling sales or, or lobbyist partner or buddy, and then we see that completely, you know, torn asunder because of her family. And I, I you know, I I uh, I do I I I'm with you. I like that, and I like it better as you know, it turns out he's a scoundrel, um, and and it's not just a wandering. Or another wandering scene, a wandering
1: thread that we don't get to resolve. Like, it turns out he's just a bad guy, and that's okay. Uh, well, and I didn't even really read it like he was a bad guy. I thought, you know, I mean, I, I feel like he's kind of making it clear, like, He's not really in it for anything, any yeah. sort of relationship. You know, I, I didn't think he was going into it like, let's fall in love. It's more of a case um, of
0: just really, really bad timing and experience that yeah, it's not right.
1: it, it is not his fault
0: that she is as inexperienced in relationships as she is. Uh, right. right. So uh, Estelle Parsons as Kalamaki. I love Estelle Parsons in this role. I think she is funny and giddy and uh, I,
1: I I adored her. I wanted more of her. She is just great. And I I think that she's one of those actresses that, again, I don't feel like I've seen her in many films. Um, Bonnie and Clyde, for sure, where, you know, she won an actress, Best Supporting Actress Oscar for that. And then right off of that, coming into this, I mean, she's just brilliant. Uh, I mean, obviously, I saw her in Dick Tracy. Don't remember her at all in that film. I think largely I probably remember her more from uh TV. Like she was in Roseanne. Uh, she uh, I think that's mostly where I probably remember her. I know she was in stuff like uh, you know, all in the family uh, back in the day, uh, stuff like that. A lot mm-hmm. of, a lot of TV stuff, but um, she's an actress who really stands out. And this film, this performance gave her a lot to do. And I found her incredibly compelling. And yeah, I, she her performance and just that whole um, struggle of emotions that she goes through after she kisses Rachel and then kind of backpedals and, and tries to figure that whole thing out, regardless of whether she's a lesbian or was she just overtaken by the emotion from that religious experience, as you mentioned earlier, or what. I don't know what it is. The film never um, clarifies it, it leaves it ambiguous. Um, but regardless, I, I think the way that she performed it was just beautiful and very touching and, and kind of heartbreaking.
0: Totally. And I could not help but think, wouldn't it be great to have Cala the movie like this is a this is a one who I think is, <laughs> is much more sort of uh, a broad depth of uh, of you know, character field, you know, that she presents as so, you know, happy and resolved and satisfied in her life. And she has found God. And then, you know, she's also inside. She's fighting this, you know, what she's characterizing is, you know, I have no doubt is this demon at this time, like that she has these feelings for women and she doesn't know what to do with it. And, you know, that that was the movie for much of the second act of this film that I wanted to be watching. I was just so much more interested in what Estelle Parsons could have done with that kind of a variety like i know what it looks like to be mopey and sad for yourself but to have this woman who carries you know who who presents with so much light but inside is is clearly you know struggling with with her own demons you know as as presented by how she relates to rachel i thought that is fascinating let's talk about her uh and and so that's you know it's another one of those things i just uh and i think it's an interesting struggle when you present a secondary character that had that, you know, can offer too much right for the story like they can outshine the story that you want people to hear. And I think that's that is the risk with a character like Kala and a performer like Estelle Parsons. I think she's she she for me, she was too much. She was luring me off into a new direction. <laughs> so
1: I can't uh, argue with your point. I think that would make for a really interesting story.
0: Uh, of, of course, Donald Moffat uh, as a brief performance uh as niall cameron uh rachel's flashback dad standing there barking like some sort of junkyard dog <laughs> uh
1: yeah his first credited feature film role Ugh. and uh it's really sad because he just passed away it was like i had watched this i think uh just a couple days before he uh passed away so it was kind of oh uh, yeah it was kind of sad to to have all that kind of hit right at the same moment we, we've talked about him, I, I think, only once, right?
0: I mean, we talked about him in The Thing.
1: Well, I think we reference him all the time because of yeah. that junkyard dog speech. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that he does so well in uh, Clear and Present Danger. But yeah, I do believe that the only time we've talked about him was in The Thing.
0: We might uh, we might be talking about him again, uh, again. He's you know uh, Lyndon B Johnson and the right stuff. That's a movie that uh, has been has snuck into a number of conversations uh, that we've had over the last couple of years, and so uh, I, I know that's in the back of my head. <laughs> uh, a- a- anybody else stand out at you uh, in terms of performance? I know there is one in particular that we that that we absolutely need to highlight, and I want to let you do that because I didn't catch it.
1: Well, first Kate Harrington uh, as her mom. I I really uh it wasn't a big role but i did appreciate what she was doing there um i enjoyed that um but terry kaiser who's the preacher uh in the uh kind of the revival thing um yeah. i did not recognize him at the time but wow that was bernie from weekend of bernies <laughs> <laughs> i didn't catch that at all either that is amazing well what's weird amazing. is i i didn't i didn't um look him up after i watched this uh but i happened to go to the gym a few days later and weirdly enough weekend at bernie's was what they had on their loop you know they'll always play something yeah. um uh, just an endless loop and i was like why am i watching weekend at bernie's you know why is that the thing that they're playing right now i had no idea so i watched the end of it and um and I saw his name pop up and I'm like, whatever happened to that guy? And I was I was looking through his credits. i like, wait a minute. What? I just missed him. <laughs> Rachel, Rachel. Crazy.
0: So funny. it is amazing. It's just amazing. I uh, it, he's got a lot of credits, a lot of TV uh, since Weekend at Bernie's. Um and yeah i didn't realize
1: he was the guy in manimal which is another yeah. show i loved in the 80s
0: yeah he's been around for a long long time it was that's really great and and it it is there a reason it is one strong reason to watch this movie again <laughs> that scene <laughs> right. uh to see if you could pick him up he was great as the the uh as the breacher
1: oh yeah fun. i i that yeah. was a that was a a fun role that was definitely kind of a meaty role for somebody to jump into
0: We talked about some of the interesting things going on with the camera and some of the choices they made around um, uh, around how they actually shot this and presented this thing. What are you uh, what do you want to
1: highlight there? This cinematographer, um, Gain Rescher, I did not recognize the name at all, um, but cinematography on Star Trek, too. So obviously um, we had talked about uh, about him before. Um, So that's just one of those. Things that I totally missed, and that was that was his last credit. Uh, other than that, I haven't seen. Well, I guess I saw a face in the crowd, but uh, just these three movies. Those are the only three of his seventeen film credits. I again, I I think that the cinematography works really well for the film. It helps with the storytelling. It helps we stay close to Rachel. We really get into her head. There's some some great moments where uh you've, we have really narrow depth of field that kind of helps with that uh likewise some just intensely close um camera shots that uh sometimes it it comes into the point where it goes out of focus it works so well in context of the story that they're doing here so i think uh largely uh i don't know if that was Completely coming from Newman or in collaboration with Gain, but I think the two of them really found a way to tell the story well.
0: It, it has that feeling of, uh, to me, of a TV movie until we get into the uh, you know the flashback stuff, right? The way he handles the the um, you know some of the more um, interesting kind of dynamic beats of her anxiety and her her sort of internal experience of the world which i thought was really interesting the the movie in in many regards doesn't call for much right you you kind of don't want it to get you don't want the presentation of the story to get out of the way or to get in the way of the story and and joanne woodward is just so interesting to watch that um you know i think it he does her service by kind of you know staying out of the way
1: and and uh in relation to everything going on with the camera And uh, the direction, I do think that D.D. Allen, who uh, was on board as the editor, uh, I think that also stands out in the way that the story is told. And I think that's uh, (laughs) when I saw that D.D. Allen uh, had done the editing um, that really clicked with me as to why I think the way that the story unfolded with the flashbacks and the, the kind of the delusional moments and the imagined scenarios, everything really felt um complete and part of a piece as far as the way that the story w- uh, unfolded for me um I DD Allen we've talked about it a number of times she's a a wonderful editor and certainly I think uh is one of the key uh crew members on this particular project
0: that's the film since this is part of our best pictures of 1968 uh series and has also been forgotten to time uh, as you so aptly put it, we we should talk about how it fared and how you certainly felt about its performance in the uh, award season.
1: Definitely. Uh, this is uh, this did get uh, a handful of Oscar nominations. It had seven total wins and nine other nominations at the Oscars. Uh, it was nominated for Best Picture, lost to Oliver, Best Leading Actress, uh, Joanne Woodward, who lost to that uh that um, tie between uh, Catherine Hepburn and Barbara Streisand. Estelle Parsons was nominated for Best Supporting Actress. She lost to Ruth Gordon in Rosemary's Baby. And the screenplay was nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay, which lost to The Lion in Winter. Over at the Golden Globes, however, uh, Paul Newman did win for best director, and Joanne Woodward did win for best actress in a drama. So it uh, it's a film that I think is recognized in some of those elements, but not necessarily um, winning a lot of the types of things like best picture and stuff.
0: Well, and it sounds like from our conversation, at least, that you would agree that this is it. it it's fair that this didn't get the win nomination uh, for the best picture uh, this year; that it was not a thing. Um, th- that it's probably okay that it's it's performed uh, as it did.
1: It's a film that I think stands out uh, for its performance. And to that end, uh, honestly, watching this, I seriously felt that uh, Joanne Woodward's performance was better than Barbara Streisand and Katherine Hepburn. I would absolutely have given her an Oscar for what she did here over either of those two. I mean, I thought Katherine Hepburn was great, but... In the performance of The Lion in Winter, um, I, I think that it still is a standout performance to see what Joanne Woodward was doing here. And, I, you know, Barbara Streisand was Barbara Streisand. I didn't think um, it was that mind-blowing of a performance. Um, I thought she was fine, but I would definitely have picked uh, Joanne Woodward of those three to win the award here. As for Estelle Parsons, I think yeah, Ruth Gordon, was my- Rosemary's Baby, uh, probably takes it for me still.
0: Uh, that was my uh, that was oh my, my goodness, uh, yes. and it's been a long time since I've seen Rosemary's Baby. So I, I probably should watch it again before I say anything. But I, I was um, I just was really taken by Estelle Parsons performance. And I, I think, you know, if there's anything I agree with you about Joanne Woodward, by the way, I think, you know, she absolutely um, should have uh, taken it for leading actress, uh, even though I. I didn't like the movie all that much. I think this is a great example of where, you know, the performance merits more attention than the film.
1: Well, it's like you said with Marion Cotillard. I mean, she did walk away with an Oscar for her performance. Absolutely. Case in point. Yeah. Uh, just a couple things. things. Uh, an actress that we did not mention, Nell Potts, played Rachel as a young w- girl uh, in the flashbacks. And that was actually Joanne Woodward and Paul Newman's daughter. Well, it's a family affair. And it's a when family you're Paul affair. Paul Newman, bring them all. Yeah. Um, a couple other things, the, uh, uh, apparently Paul Newman asked Jim Morrison of all people to write a song for the movie, but I guess it didn't end up working out. I would really love to see what that was. That would have been yeah. a really interesting, uh, yeah. song, uh, to play out. So, um, and, uh, uh, I guess that's it. I guess that was all my notes. I thought yeah. I had one more, but I really don't.
0: <laughs> well, you do, because that is, Andy, to answer the question, the one question, the biggest question of the hour. How did it do <laughs> at the box office?
1: Newman's Little Movie had a budget of 780000 which is about $5.4 in today's dollars. I would argue that that's a pretty hefty budget for a, a small character piece that feels like an indie film. Uh, but again, with uh, some big names attached, I think that's why the budget is what it is. The movie was released August 26, 1968. The only new release that weekend. Now, here it gets a little tricky to sort out how much money it made. Variety reported in their Big Rental Rental Films of 1968 article that it made three million dollars in rentals, which is a rental accruing to distributors. Now, the suggestion is that rental income constitutes approximately. Half of the box office gross, with the other half going to the distributor. It's a conservative estimate. Some people say it's a third, um, but we're going to stick with the conservative estimate for now. And that would mean the film made around $6 million at the box office, which is about $41.5 million in today's dollars. All that being said, Rachel, Rachel ends up with an adjusted profit per finished minute of, of about $357,000. How do
0: you think a movie like this would, would have fared if it was released, you know, today? as
1: we speak this is its opening day rachel rachel it's the sort of film that is very much um the distributor is going to be very careful with its release date this is the sort of film that is going to get a limited release first um and certainly released at a time where they're going to be pushing for award nominations so i would see it as a november december limited push maybe Mm -hmm. one that only gets you know uh, New York, L.A. release and then is released in the spring uh, just to just to kind of be considered for award nominations, because absolutely that's the sort of release it's going to be um, for some reason in my head, the film that stuck with me uh, as and I don't know if it's a completely good comparison, but um, Julianne Moore won an a-, a best actress Oscar a couple of years ago for um, Still Alice, I think. Was that the name mm-hmm. of it? Um, where she was um, uh, dealing with Alzheimer's. right? That movie, uh, I felt like, was maybe an apt comparison, where it's a small uh, actress-led performance film that um, gets some award nominations because of it, um, and the box office is largely because of that award push. Um, I think it would have fared similarly to that one.
0: I, I, I probably I'm, I'd be interested to see how it actually performed because uh, it was still Alice, because I think, you know, I, I think this movie may fall prey to just dramatically increase competition in theaters. Uh, to your point about distributors, I,
1: I think that uh, I think it'd be hard to get this movie seen. Well, and that, again, uh, you know, the only way movies like this get seen is because of award pushes. Yeah. I yeah. mean, that's kind of the sad state of affairs. It really um, is. Still, Alice had a $5 million budget, which is comparable, and ended up making uh, $41 million uh, worldwide, which Which is is almost exactly the same.
0: That's fascinating. I don't even know what that says about my argument. I think it makes it uh, weak. (laughs) I think it is a weak argument, (laughs) which is disappointing for some, and those some would be me. Uh, Fascinating. Uh, There you go. Well, let's move on quickly uh, to (laughs) a part that takes me (laughs) off the hook. And that is uh, when we talk about ranking it. Right. Head over to to flickchart.com. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. And you'll see all the films we've talked about uh, on this show.
1: Uh, You can add it to your catalog over there and see how it stacks up against ours. All right. First up, uh, uh, interesting uh, set of character pieces here. Rachel, Rachel, or Fat City? I'm going oh, with Fat, Fat
0: City. Fat City, yeah.
1: Rachel, Rachel, or La Femme Nikita? Interesting female led uh, films here. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to go I'll with say La Femme Nikita. Yep. Yeah. Rachel, Rachel, or Giant? I'll say Rachel, Rachel. Interesting. I- I'll give you a Rachel, Rachel. Rachel, Rachel, or. Your favorite, uh, everybody's really, everybody's favorite uh, film about life in a morgue, post-mortem. Why <laughs> are <laughs> you doing that? <laughs> hey, Rachel, Rachel. I'll give you Rachel, Rachel. Rachel, Rachel, or Star Trek V, The Final Frontier. Star Trek, but, you know, because it's Star Trek. Yeah, I'm going to acknowledge that Rachel, Rachel is probably a better film, but uh, I'm going to for Star Trek V. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it makes me grit my teeth a little bit as I say it. Every time, like, I'm just picturing the cat lady, the crazy cat lady. (laughs) What a disaster that was. Rachel, Rachel, or the untouchables. I'll say the untouchables. Untouchables, yeah. Rachel, Rachel, or danger diabolic. For crying out loud, Rachel, Rachel. I'm a little torn on this, but I'll uh, I'll give you Rachel, Rachel. Rachel, Rachel, or from hell. I'll say from hell. Uh, From hell, sure. All right, well, Rachel, Rachel lands in spot 310. 310 out of 385. Interesting that. Uh I yeah. What is that what does that make it? It's about a nineteen percent.
0: I, I think that's lower than I expected it to hit. Uh how'd it do on your
1: own list? It's an interesting film. I uh just relished the performances, but I didn't see it as a film uh that I would probably watch again anytime soon. Um, And it wasn't a film I loved, even though I appreciated a lot of things about it. It ended up landing at 3,065 out of 4,082, which is about a 25%. A lot lower than I probably thought it would have also.
0: This is one of those movies, Flickchart took the reins, and uh, it just presented movies that I it it was way too easy for me not to choose this film. And uh, as a result, it ended up out of... uh, four out of a hundred, four percent. uh At ten fifteen out of ten fifty four on my list, which I, you know, according to the algorithm, this should be a zero star movie elsewhere. And <laughs> ouch, that is a I think a, a fairly grotesque underrating of of where I think it should be. Uh, in terms of my desire to watch this movie again, it it really lands at at around a two two and a half star. Um. I don't. I don't think this is not a movie. I'm. I, I can think of anybody that I'm eager to say, "Hey, come on over. Let's watch Rachel, Rachel together." This is a good movie. I'd like to introduce you to. It's. It, it's. It's not that film, uh, but I. I absolutely have to acknowledge Joanne Woodward's performance and Estelle Parsons' performances. They're just terrific, and. Um, and so it it it's worth seeing for that. Uh, as a film, yeah, it's middle of the road. So are you saying
1: two and a half? Yeah, I'll go two and a half. And is that a, a like or no like?
0: From uh, what you were
1: saying, I was gathering it was a no like, no heart. Yeah, yeah, it's a no like. It's a no like. But I feel a little bit bad about it. I don't like saying no like. I feel like no heart is better. No, so, heart. okay, yeah, no heart. No for me heart. that's better. Yeah, no heart. Yeah. yeah, for me it actually I'm rating it at a three and a half because I think there's a lot of strength with the story and the characters. But it's I, I still am not giving it a heart. Yeah. Uh, it's a you know it's it's and I'm you know it's a three and a half. Yet I ranked it. At a 25% on my flick chart, but I think that speaks to where it stands. I think there's a lot of qualities, but I just don't think it's a film that that I would put on again.
0: Yeah, so. that's it, that's an interesting experience for us on this uh, uh, with this movie. I'm I'm glad we saw it, and I'm certainly glad we're wrapping up the catalog of 1968. Uh, and uh, that takes us to our next film. What where do we go from here?
1: Yeah, we're going to be hitting the uh, the final film of the nominees for Best Picture 1968. uh, The one that will close out um, our 1968 uh, kind of overarching series of 50th anniversaries, as well as this uh, particular series with the Best Picture nominees. We are looking at uh, Franco Zeffirelli's production of Romeo and Juliet. I have not uh, watched it yet. I've tried, Andy. I've tried.
0: But I've, I've, it's been too late. It's been too late at night, and I have fallen asleep three
1: nights running.
0: I don't Shakespeare think requires
1: the, a lot of focus. It
0: really does. It really does. And so I've been suffering through that a little bit. But uh, I'm I'm excited to finish that up and talk to you about it, and wrap up our year celebrating 1968. Well,
1: if you want to hear more of us, but you can't wait until next week's show, hey, check out our new show, The Marvel Movie Minute, that just went live earlier this week. We're talking about the films of the Marvel
0: Cinematic Universe one minute at a time, and we're starting with 2008's
1: Iron Man. You can support that show and all of our shows over on patreon.com slash thenextreel, and you can get access to our exclusive members-only weekend show, The Saturday Matinee. We talk about movie news and new trailers, plus we go head-to-head in our weekly
0: challenge in which we put together lists of movies related in some way to the movie we're discussing that
1: week. There are all sorts of other goodies, too, if you support us at different levels. Just head on over to patreon.com slash thenextreel. You can learn more about us and check out the detailed show notes at thenextreel.com. You can subscribe for free in your favorite podcast app and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at thenextreel. And if you want to get into the conversation yourself,
0: join our Discord server for a whole lot of movie chat with movie lovers from around the world. You can find the link to join in the show notes or on the website. The Next Reel couldn't happen without the hard work
1: of Steven Smart running Instagram. Ben Lott, who runs all things Twitter. And thanks to Eli Catlin, who graciously allows us to use his song Ragtime Instrumental as the theme to the show. You can find out more about Eli on his SoundCloud page. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. (music)
0: Amazon giveth Andy, as Amazon always doeth. You know there aren't a lot of reviews uh, for this movie; only thirty-seven total reviews that I can see on Amazon.com. But uh, we we got yeah. a couple that had some things we to did. say.
1: We did find some. Yes, we did.
0: I'll uh, you, you want me to you want me to kick it off? Yeah, sure. Go ahead. The, the good the good Edie uh, wrote in Hot Toasty Rag, July tenth, two thousand seventeen. Edie Nolan wrote uh, her own review of this film. She calls it one of my worst movies. Sorry, Paul Newman. I couldn't stand this movie. Newman directed his wife, Joanne Woodward, in the title role, and he repeatedly praised her acting, saying it was at times difficult to watch because it was so real. It was hard for me to watch as well, but not for that reason. Rachel Rachel is about a spinster who lives with her demanding mother. Rachel's never been with a man, and she's terribly depressed at how her life has turned out. While she usually sees her mother as an excuse to stay stuck, when a man shows interest in her, she actually agrees. Is she feeling her ticking clock? Is her sanity about to snap so she's not thinking clearly? Whatever the reason for her unusual behavior, I didn't quite understand it. In any case, she's a very depressive and strange person. I didn't like her. I wasn't rooting for her. And I can only imagine how frustrated a modern feminist would be with this story. Why couldn't this woman find any other aspect of her life to improve? I tried hard to appreciate Woodward's performance, despite my intense dislike of her character. The more I tried, the more I couldn't stand her. Since I hardly think that this was the intention of the film, I'm not going to recommend this one, unless you're looking for a new favorite worst movie.
1: Well, it's a new favorite of some sort.
0: (laughs) Ouch! (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Mm -hmm. Uh
1: Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Well Well, well said, Edie. Yes, indeed. Well, I've got a one star by S.E.T. who says, simply, don't. (laughs) I love to see Joanne Woodward act, but this movie was not well written. A single woman living with her mother. Both are lonely, getting on each other's nerves, and living in a small, depressed town. There are many inappropriate areas to this movie. Rated R. Didn't remember seeing that at the time of the reviewing. I threw it in the trash. (laughs) Wow. Take that, Paul Take that, Newman. movie.
0: <laughs> <laughs> How dare you, movie. <laughs> Thanks, Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM